Hi, this is Elliot, host of Inspired Edinburgh. Please come and check out our Facebook page for all of the latest updates. If I could ask a small favour, please could you subscribe and review our show on iTunes. By doing this, you'll be helping us reach a wider audience and have a greater impact by challenging perceptions and encouraging people to live a more conscious life. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh. Powerful conversations helping you reconnect with your purpose. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Gavin Neat. Gavin is a socially aware entrepreneur and the founder and CEO of Neatbox, a proximity aware technology company finding innovative solutions for the enhancement of independent daily living for people dealing with reduced mobility. Your aim is to be part of a movement that encourages a more inclusive society. Absolutely brilliant. Gavin, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show. It's an absolute pleasure meeting you too. <laughs> Thank you so much. I like the handshake. Don't get that enough. <laughs> it seems it seems fairly normal that you would shake somebody's hands when they've said some amazing things about you. So, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're absolutely welcome. Um, I've been watching um, what you've been doing from, from afar um, with, with some uh, excitement and uh, yeah, I think the work that you're doing is absolutely fantastic and I, I can't wait to, to get into it. Thank you so much. I look forward to tell you about it. <laughs> Great. So I suppose if we can kick off by starting at the, the very beginning um, about, you know, where did you grow up? What was your background mm -hmm. um, and really who Gavin Neat is? Yeah. Uh, wow, that's going back a long way. It nearly <laughs> starts with when the dinosaurs, first there were designed dinosaurs. Uh, so. Um, as people will tell straight away or very quickly that I have quite an English accent and uh, the reason for that is because I was born in England to English parents. I was born in Surrey so you can't even get more English than that. <laughs> yeah. So born in Surrey at the age of two I think maybe my parents have been watching um, the, the Good Life with Richard Briers and Felicity Kendall uh, and they decided that they were going to move to Scotland which my father always loved for rock climbing. And we moved up to the northwest coast of Scotland to a tiny little fishing village called Alt Bay, which is just yeah. south of Ullapool, across from Inverness, basically on the west coast. Okay. And I went to primary school there. Um, my father was in a mountain rescue team and uh, he was the leader of the mountain rescue team and I used to go out and do rock climbing and all that kind of stuff with him. So I kind of, I grew up there, I even learned Gaelic when I was in primary school. Really? And uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, my Gaelic teacher was a lady called Kay Matheson, who is quite famous in Scottish folklore. I'm going to let people look that one up <laughs> rather than tell everybody. But yeah, they can look up Kay Matheson. Uh, so I was there for primary school and I think there was only three, three boys in my year. So it was talking oh. very, very small little village primary school. Mm -hmm. And then my parents split up and I moved to uh, Calendar, so central Scotland. Mm -hmm. And I went to secondary school in Calendar. Uh, at the age of 16 and a half, I left school. Didn't, wasn't really the most academic child in, in the school, but I kind of knew that I wanted to be a chef, obviously, because uh, of what I do now. And uh, I, I did, uh, I, I harbored ideas that I would become a chef. So the first thing I did, obviously, was go and work at a motorway cafe, which probably got rid of any real need for me to be a chef. Because uh, it's, it's probably it's polar opposites, yes. motorway cafe to being chef. Yeah. Um, but during that time, my mother was, I would have been 17 and a half years old. My mother was like, well, what do you fancy doing? You still want to be a chef? What do you want to do? I said, oh, I'm not really sure. She said, what about the military? You should, we could pop into, it was down in, I'd moved down to Taunton at this point, just for eight months. Um, so she took me into the middle of Taunton, uh, dropped me outside the RAF careers office, said, go in there and ask them if you could be a chef. So I went in, the chap said, no, no, there's no positions for chefs at this precise moment in time, but you could be a policeman. And I went, hmm. 
And then the icing on the cake at that point was, what about a dog handler? And I thought, okay, a dog handler, that sounds really good. I'd been involved with dogs in the mountain rescue and we'd always had dogs, uh, as a lot of people have, but the dogs in the mountain rescue was like, wow, a dog for a purpose, that's kind of cool. Mm. Um, he said, you'll have to be a policeman. I went, okay, I'll get over that bit and thought, well, yeah, I'll go and be a police dog handler. And I signed up pretty much on the day and signed up for nine and a half years to become a police dog handler. And I think oh. that might be the first time I really did something without thinking. It was just, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I'm going to do that. And that's probably going to get repeated at some point through through what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. uh, so <laughs> I then joined the RAF and I did nine and a half years. I was based at RAF Kinloss, way up on the northeast coast of Scotland. Then I went out to Cyprus for three years. And then I came back to RAF Lucas, where I did my last three three and a half years, but I did things like I uh, went to the Falkland Islands and Alaska and had a fantastic time. Wow. I loved being in the forces mm -hmm. and uh, it was it was just a super job. Uh, but I learned a lot about dogs and I learned that I had a real skill to work with dogs and I enjoyed working with dogs and I thought when I left the forces, what could I do next? And the next thing on the agenda um, was trying to find a job where I could use those skills. Now just up the road from RAF Lucas is Forfa which is home of guide dogs in Scotland. So I started doing voluntary work in uh, the guide dog school. Mm -hmm. And I very quickly realized this was what I really wanted to do. But there had been inklings or feelings within me that the dogs were great, but actually my real uh, yearning was to work with people. And the idea of training a dog, which I could do, mm -hmm. to actually help a person who maybe had challenges in other areas, well, wow, what an opportunity to do something that would be really, really useful. Uh, and that's as far as it went. That was just, well, yeah, I'll give that a shot. So I applied for the job. There were 900 people applied for the two positions, uh, but I'd been doing uh, a lot of voluntary work and quite obviously I had a lot of skills in the area and I got offered the job. Um, they only offered one position, so I was really wow. fortunate. <laughs> uh, so the idea was to, I had to go down to uh, work in England at that point. I was taken for a job down in, um, where was it, uh, Surrey or some, somewhere like that, it was somewhere like that, Surrey. And I didn't want to, I wanted to stay in Scotland. Uh, and a job came up six months later, which I then took, which was kind of useful because I was having a back operation at the time, so I couldn't really take the job anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so eventually I joined Guide Dogs and I uh, did a three-year training course because a lot of people don't necessarily understand. They think, oh yeah, work for Guide Dogs, here's a dog, walk the dog there's a guide dog. No, they're not born guide dogs. There's a lot of training. So it's a three-year degree mm. course to actually to do the, the training to become a guide dog mobility instructor. But that was absolutely fine and I just loved it. It's just the best job in the world, quite literally. Training dog to then train the dog with a person. And your hands off with the dog. The dog for three months is something that you want to look at you and go, I love you and I'm going to do everything you could possibly want because you're a great handler and you're just, we're getting on really well and isn't it great to do all this stuff that we're doing? It's good fun. And then on that day when you hand the dog to the visually impaired person, you never even talk, well, I never even talked to the dog again. Mm -hmm. uh, that was it. That's now not my dog. That belongs to the, the client. That's their dog. The dog has to then look at them and go, I love you. You're the person who's going to take me. And if they don't mm -hmm. look at me again, not a problem. And I think because I was very much a people person at that time, I didn't, I didn't miss out. I didn't really feel like I was losing anything. Mm -hmm. and a lot of people in dog training, they're dog lovers. Yes. And they need that love in some way. They need that connection. Whereas I realized I didn't need it anymore. Mm. Uh, and I suppose in total, I did 28 years as a professional dog trainer. 
um, military police and then guide dogs to the blind. It was a long wow. time to be in something. Yeah. Uh, but during the time between then and now, there have been some massive changes on our planet, massive changes. And the obvious one to anybody watching this or listening to this, they will realize that technology has just gone leaps and bounds in that time. Mm -hmm. And nowhere was that more apparent to me than with my clients who were turning up to train with a guide dog in 2007 when the first iPhone came out. And mm -hmm. they were using, even before that, with Nokia N95 and a lot of these phones. Phones were talking to them. And they were actually, they were talking back to the phone and the phone had infancy, but it was still doing what they wanted it to do. Mm -hmm. And they were doing banking in a different way. And they were watching television in a different way. There was a lot more audio description. For t there was so much advances. And then there were so many other things that were changing in society with the advent of the popular Paralympic uh, sports, uh, Paralympic Games. Mm -hmm. You suddenly realize that there are people out there who not only can do something, but they can do it better than anybody else can. And mm -hmm. in the majority of sports where there's a Paralympian taking place, or they're doing the sport, if you sat in a wheelchair, you couldn't even dream to be as good as one of these people. They mm -hmm. are professional sports people. Mm -hmm. And it's still, we're still a long way short, but society's changing to the extent where these guys are superstars now. And we, we're even we're younger people don't even look at the disability, and nor should they. Mm -hmm. uh, and I realized that there was this, the feelings that I had through the entire 18 years of being with guide dogs were starting to be seen by society, but too slowly. It's still too slow. Mm -hmm. And people are still a little bit, ah, oh, or wow, aren't they amazing? Uh, and that's even portrayed in TV and adverts and things like that. You see this, wow, isn't that amazing? And YouTube videos where, wow. And, and I'm like, well, just another person who's just doing amazing things. Yeah. Uh, and that's the kind of feeling that I wanted. I want to be part of that. And I always said to people when I was with guide dogs that guide dogs, I was not Lewis Hamilton in this analogy. I was the pit crew. I was the guy changing the tire and then going, away you go. And the person then disappears off in the Formula One. It's them that's doing the racing. They're the important person. And I just wanted to be part of that. Where does um, that sort of humility come from in you, do you think? Um, that's a, it's a really good question. I, I, can't, I, I cannot really put my finger on it, but I will say my mother. Uh, incredibly moral person who always does the right thing. And mm -hmm. I, I took a lot from how she saw the world. My mum would be like, my mum would be the sort of person who would sit there uh, and she did on the northwest coast of Scotland with a TV that had no reception and still pay her TV license. <laughs> That's just like that, so moral. No, no, no. I need to pay my TV. Well, BBC are doing amazing things and, and they need to be able to get that funding and I'm, of course I'm going to pay. And I was yeah. like, mum, are you serious? Uh, but I kind of, I think some of that probably came from that. It's like mm -hmm. a moral code that I think uh, lots of people have, but uh, it, I wear it very much on my sleeve. I'm, I believe in it 100%, as hopefully you'll see. Um, so back to the, the technology and what was happening in guide dogs, I was seeing that there was going to be a future where the smart device, uh, mobile, and uh, obviously the iPad or the Mac or whatever it might be, PC was not mobile, but the smart device was going to be something that somebody had with them all the time. So when they left home, they were going to be walking from A to B and that was going to be there. And then I guess, I can't even remember what year this was, but we started looking at GPS and you would have like a Palm Pilot, mm -hmm. which would then have a GPS system on it and the person could work out where they were roughly. Uh, now I wasn't, I've never been a massive fan of GPS for working out where you are because 
Uh, it's the same with drivers. And if, if people remember when GPS came out in cars, you'd have people turning off into canals and fields and things like that. I think when it comes to orientation and mobility, you've got to know where you're going and where you've been and where you are. And mm -hmm. sometimes just having an awareness of where you are is what it's all about. So when it came to the guide dog, I just needed my client to know where they were based on the sounds, what was under their feet, how many roads they'd crossed, mm -hmm. which where they were on the chessboard. If you yes. think of it as a chessboard, the person is somewhere on that. If they know where they are, you didn't constantly have to be telling them, turn left, turn right, go straight. Because if you rely on that and it suddenly breaks or you can't use it anymore, you've lost your orientation. Um, so technology seemed to me to be that natural move into the next step. And I, I most certainly was, as far as guide dogs were concerned, ahead of that curve because that didn't seem to be what the organization was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. They were very much very focused on long cane and guide dog. And I was thinking, well, what's the future going to be? But it didn't matter because I was just happy to be involved, watch my clients, what they were doing, and learn about it myself. And yeah. that's pretty much how I started thinking more about technology in the same way I thought about the dog, which wasn't like, wow, I love technology, like a dog lover. It okay. was, wow, look at what technology can do for somebody. Mm. And I think that was... Yeah, people expect that, oh, you must be a real techie. I'm like, no, I'm rubbish. Ask my team. <laughs> they go, like, no. They have to help him with his IT all the time. He hasn't got a clue what he's doing. Yeah, uh, kind of, it, that's really interesting because I kind of wondered that. Like, how tech savvy were you? You know, and, and how did I suppose, how did you identify that these things were going to be happening? It's quite astute to put that together. I, I just saw it. Yeah. I, I just saw it. <laughs> uh, and I think when you really care for something, when you really love something, you'll see things that other people don't see. You'll see patterns, yeah. it, not in from the point that I can see a pattern forming, but you're then surprised when other people don't know it. <laughs> and I, I guess that is, is how I would look at it. It's like, well, how wouldn't you know that? And it's just an openness to the mm. area that you have an ex experience in. And that's the same for anybody. I, I'm fairly certain that's the same for anybody. If I was in any different uh, job function, I would see it as well in the same way they might. Interesting. I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, it, it, from looking at your LinkedIn profile, it looks as though Neatbox and you're working as a, a guide dog instructor, they kind of um, converged, if you like. Yeah. So it wasn't that you just kind of uh, went, leapt from one straight into the other. This was a gradual process. Yeah. So when did that originally start and how did it look in the, in the, in the beginning? Well... And it's a good point because I worked for guide dogs for three and a half years before I even thought about leaving guide dogs. I had never, at no point did I ever think I want a company. At no point did I ever think, oh wow, how exciting. Mm -hmm. It was something that just had to happen in order for me to do something. So um, I can remember, and we can talk about my the very first idea, which was coming up to a pedestrian crossing and, and somebody not being able to press a button. And I can remember saying to a friend of mine who's an entrepreneurial dentist of all things, I said, yeah, it's a real challenge when you're visually impaired. You've got to find a button and press the button and then you've got to get from the button to the best place on the crossing before you cross the road. Yeah. And we all know about the tactile paving that you find on a pavement mm -hmm. and we all know there's a button. But the best place if you're visually impaired to be is in the middle of the tactile paving because if you then set out across the road, you've got the highest chance of hitting tactile paving on the other side of the road. Mm -hmm. But the button is on the periphery of the tactile paving. So by the very design, you have to be standing next to the button at the periphery 
Yeah. So it to the design just to totally goes against what you should be doing. But that was the design. And mm. I just thought, well, wouldn't it be good if you could press the button while you were standing in the middle of the tactile paving? Or, wow, I could do that with a mobile phone. Now, how do I go about doing that? And it was pretty much that simple. And oh. <laughs> uh, my entrepreneurial dentist friend, he said, you should go and talk to Business Gateway. Or I've got a couple of friends who in this, they could give you a bit of feedback. And he was the guy who made the snowball. I made the snowball. And he just kicked the snowball down the hill because then he disappeared off to Singapore and left me to it. But <laughs> at that point, I was already rolling down a hill and it was unable to stop. But I wanted the momentum because I could see that I was finding solutions. And at every single step, I would say to people, what do you think of this? And they'd go, wow, why has nobody ever seen that's a problem? And I was thinking, well, if that's the case, I might be the only person who's seen this. Uh, so I'm kind of duty bound to do something about it. <laughs> yeah. It goes back to my mother. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> but as, as you said before, you, you, weren't, um, you weren't a coder or a developer. You weren't from this kind of tech mindset. What were the steps that you took in order to bring this to reality? Yeah, well, the first thing you have to do if you want to be the CEO of a, of a technology company <laughs> yeah. is learn how to train dogs, obviously, because <laughs> it works really well. <laughs> no, not a techie. <laughs> It was not a technophobe. I loved Space Invaders in the okay. 1980s, the 70s, <laughs> yeah. whatever it was. I had a Commodore 64. I didn't oh, well. code with it. I played Elite. So <laughs> I, I was a games player. I've always been a games player. But then apps, I, would, I started using apps. Um, but I didn't see my connection to what I wanted to do with technology. There was no connection to that and my clients. It was like it was a different thing. Uh, when I say mm -hmm. clients, I'm talking about the, the people I was training with guide dogs. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wasn't a techie at all. I had no interest in coding. I had no interest in, in anything other than using it for the end purpose. Uh, and even now, uh, my ops director, he, he just goes, right, okay, and I've seen what Gavin wants. I know the vision that Gavin's got. I can go and put that into practice. And the, the nuts and the bolts and the tightening of, of things is his realm rather than mine. Mm -hmm. More visionary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's my way of getting away with being lazy, I think. <laughs> Maybe, who knows? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, not a techie, uh, yeah. but just realizing that technology can be used for so many things. Okay, and so what has been your your journey end to end from beginning to, to where you are now? Yeah, so the pedestrian crossing. Okay. Business gateway. Um, I, I, I was never a wealthy person, uh, but again, down to my mother, I had savings. I'd bought a house. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd my very first house was a very small house, but I'd kept it and rented it out. Uh, but it had gone up in value, so I thought, well, I'll sell that and I'll just have that money and I can invest that into the company. Although, in fact, it wasn't an investment because I didn't know it was going to go anywhere. It was more, I need to do it, so therefore, it was like, well, if I lose all that money, it's not a problem. Okay. Uh, so it was just put the money into it. Uh -huh. So uh, I started doing that, uh, putting money into it. Uh, luckily, with Business Gateway, there's fantastic support that you can get and you'll get grant funding and you'll get help with different things. Mm -hmm. I did a feasibility study into the different sorts of technologies that were available. and. Um, it was really just finding a bit of hardware that I could then put inside a pedestrian crossing that would send out a signal. And at the time, uh, all we really had was RFID, NFC, RFID had been around for a while, radio frequency, uh, near field uh, communications, which is NFC, um, Wi-Fi uh, was just starting to get bigger mm -hmm. at that point, um, Bluetooth. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really the technology that we had. And Bluetooth wasn't really very useful at the time because you had to do a handshake. 
So if you had to handshake between one phone to the other, you had to both mm -hmm. put in codes and that stopped you from getting sent stuff and pushed stuff all the time because you mm -hmm. had to be part of it. But in 2011, um, I was coming to a bit of a, oh, okay, well, we're just gonna have to use Bluetooth because it was the best we could find for using it. Uh, and I heard of this new thing called BLE, Bluetooth 4.0, which had been talked about, but nobody really knew what it was gonna be used for because it was Bluetooth low energy. It didn't really do anything. Mm. Um, you couldn't transfer lots of data, but uh, it seemed that I could pick up a signal from it. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll, if I could pick up a signal, be that a one or a zero, <laughs> I'm talking about stuff I don't know, an on or an off or a green man or a red man, yeah. then I could maybe interact with that and change it to button pushed, which is exactly what I did. Oh. Uh, it was just finding a bit of tech. So we installed that, oh, rather before that, I, I'd been taking videos and pictures of my clients having challenging moments with pedestrian crossings. And I took one of those videos to um, the Society of Chief Officers of Transport Scotland and he looked at the video and he went, wow, there's a lady unable to cross, so she just goes, well, I'll hold out my hand and wait for the cars to stop. At a pedestrian crossing, because she couldn't find the button. Uh, and she nearly gets run over. And it was like, how did we not know this was a problem? And the hmm. traffic industry suddenly went, whoa, this is dangerous stuff. Uh, so he put forward for me to get some funding. The funding went to another organization that looked after me doing the work. <laughs> uh, and we put on a trial at Cameron Toll in Edinburgh. And we put the hardware into the box. We got 11 people to come up and press the button with a mobile phone. And everybody went, that's pretty impressive. Uh, but I was still working for guide dogs at the time. So this was something that just had to be tiny steps at a time. That was a real challenge. Yeah. The big thing I think that happened was, uh, it was a week before the competition, but I suddenly saw online there was a competition called Edinburgh Apps. This is 2013. And I entered Edinburgh Apps thinking, oh, this would be good. And it was how to use data sets for new technologies. And I won the competition. It was a civic challenge with Edinburgh Council, City of Edinburgh Council. And I won the competition with the pedestrian crossing. And that kind of gave me the first boost that there was something here that I could use. But I'm still working yeah. for guide dogs at the time. And eventually I took a sabbatical for a year. And at the end of that, I just I couldn't go back. It was as much as I wanted to go back. I was desperate to work for them at the same time. I could do part-time or whatever it was because I'm not earning any money. Uh, it's all pre-revenue, I'm just living off one flat. Uh, and I just thought, well, I have to do it. So that's pretty much what I did, just a sabbatical that led into then just being full-time. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jump. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> I was like 40 at the time, so yeah, <laughs> that's a challenge. See. And you, because um, I've seen your, your LinkedIn picture is a picture of you and Richard Branson. Yeah. We kind of touched upon this before. That was, was that prior to the competition, the pitch to Rich, which, which you entered? No, that was, um, the pitch to Rich was the first one, but that was after I'd won the Edinburgh Apps competition. I oh, think I'd right. gone, well, quite obviously, this is fantastic. People are going to get it. Now, the, the des developer that I was using, X-Design, they were only very small at the time. There was only five of them, four of them, um, Edinburgh-based uh, developer. And they put forward the, the idea to another competition. And I can't even remember the name of the, I think it's called DADE Awards, which is quite a big technology thing. It's a daddy, you'd think it was something else, but it was daddy awards. And I was up against nine or 10 other companies and it was won by PlayStation and it had Google, Virgin, um, Audi, I think were in there, National wow. Express was in there, and I came okay. second. 
No way, really. No budget, no money. <laughs> and the pedestrian crossing system came second, uh, beating Google and uh, Virgin. <laughs> but it was just like, how in God's name did that happen? Anyway, it happened. But I didn't make anything of it because I knew nothing about marketing. But I kind of got this idea that, well, I could go into other competitions. And I saw this uh, pitch to Rich. Mm -hmm. uh, I put in for the competition uh, for the pedestrian crossing. I got into the last 10. It then went to a public vote, which I, I didn't really know how to make pedestrian crossing sexy. And it was up against people that were doing quite sexy things with headphones and, and other stuff, biodegradable okay. clothes that you could <laughs> drop on the ground and turn it into flowers and all that kind of stuff. So I wasn't ever going to win that. But I got invited down to Richard Branson's house for the award ceremony. So I went down. Of course, I carried my pedestrian crossing with me uh, down to his house and hung around at the end after he'd done all the awards for the people who'd won. And I said to the lady with the clipboard, I said, look, any chance I could get a picture with Richard Branson? And she went, uh, I'll see what I can do, I'll see what I can do. And uh, at the end of it, he was just making his way out and she went, Richard, and he went, what was that, what's that? Uh, and went, could you just one more photograph? So I jumped out there, pedestrian crossing, which had got virgin written on, <laughs> thinking that, that that would be, yeah, every crossing's gonna have virgin on it. But he's got the railways. Uh, so I got a photograph of Richard Branson and I don't big it up. I don't go, I know Richard Branson. I don't know Richard Branson. I stood next to Richard Branson. But the very fact that you stand next to Richard Branson means that people go, that's somebody who's not, who's, who knows Richard Branson. Richard Branson knows this. Wherever he goes, he's very happy to have entrepreneurs take photographs with him because he is very astute in this area. He knows that if you get a photograph of Richard Branson and you've got the kahunas enough to use that, <laughs> then... It can, it can open doors. It can also work against you. And I've toyed with the idea of not having that as a LinkedIn profile. In what way might it work against you? People be like, look, who, who does he think he is standing there with Richard Branson? What a show off. It's like the person at the party who constantly tells you about people that they know. Eventually it's quite boring. Uh, and I was worried about that. But on the plus side, I've got a lot from it. Uh, I will change it sooner or later. Or Maybe next time I reach Richard Branson, he'll keep it on his profile. Yeah. <laughs> Did I just say that on camera? <laughs> what sort of things have come off it then? Mm. Uh, what came off that? Not, you know, if you live your life thinking something is going to come off something all the uh -huh. time, then you start thinking that that's why you're doing it. And I wasn't doing it for that reason. It was just, I'm going to do it. And then once it had done, it was out the way. Mm -hmm. I don't know what came from it. I think experience for me came from it. The ability to stand up and just put myself out there came from it. The idea that I could stand up in a room full of people and talk about this stuff and be passionate about it, that came from it. Did somebody come up and go, wow, we've seen you on Richard Branson's Voom competition, yeah. we need to invest 100,000, 200,000, 2 million pounds in you? No, <laughs> uh, even though quite obviously the potential is there to do something like that. But yeah. no, uh, if, if I was thinking, what can I get from it? It was the experience and a photograph of Richard Branson with me going like that. Yeah. Uh, that's what I got from it. <laughs> so with, this is, on your website, you've got sort of three product offerings from what I can see. You've got the Welcome app, which we'll hear about, no doubt, the Button app and the Explore app. Mm. So the the Crossings is the what you consider to be the Button app, is that right? Yes, yeah, we gave them yeah. names just last year because we, were, we, we just had sort of working titles for them. Uh -huh. Pedestrian Crossing app, yeah. uh, Customer Services app tourism app they just didn't seem right so I, I was just thinking well welcome welcome for welcome that's what we did button is just it's a button it just yes. seems obvious they nearly became working titles in what they were but they just seem to have stuck <laughs> and they're, they're quite good uh, yeah. for, for lots of reasons I, I'm very happy with them 
um, they, that does what this says on the tin. But you mentioned Button and Explore and, and Welcome. Yeah, I was going to touch upon um, Button first of all. So is mm -hmm. that something that um, has been rolled out? I mean, is it something, do you sell it to councils? How does that work? Yeah, well, anybody that's ever worked in the public sector realises these things take a long time. Yes. And I might not have ever done anything else if somebody had gone, oh yeah, brilliant, pedestrian crossing, put that in, done. <laughs> I might never have gone anywhere else. That might have just been all-encompassing and did everything for me. But mm -hmm. I was waiting around for so long for people to recognise this. Uh, I went to, I was doing big conferences around the world, just doing presentations on the challenges people with disability or mobility challenges feel when they get to pedestrian crossings, trip mm -hmm. hazards and all the rest of it. Um, but it took a long time. And I was still at that time working full-time for guide dogs. So what else could I do? Now, just to let you know where Button is now, um, we've been recognised and we seem to be doing quite well just now. We were approached by Transserve, who uh, look after trunk roads in the west of Scotland. Uh, they said, we really like your stuff. Would you be able to put your equipment into two crossings in Largs on the west coast? And we said yes. They said, could you give us a proposal? We gave them a proposal. They went, oh, that's cost-effective, not cheap, <laughs> that's cost-effective, we'll have 10. So they then decided they wanted to do the whole of Largs. Wow. So the whole of Largs as of last week uh, is operated by smartphone and Apple Watch. And that's the first in the world. Uh, nobody's done it before. So it's a massive step forward. And um, to get to that stage, we had five crossings in Edinburgh, which nobody really knew about. We had one at the Edinburgh International Conference Centre, and we had four at Lauriston Place, where the Eye Pavilion is, but we had, uh, we had one outside the back of the Scottish Parliament. It's been there for five years. <laughs> you just go, it's the first in the world, sitting at the Scottish Parliament. Yeah. You've got to be banging on people's doors or shaking them by the lapels and going, look what you've got. But you just, you can't get too upset with that. You just have to keep moving and, and learn and, and just do your best. And we're, yeah. we're getting close to that stage now. So Button exists. Um, we've now got one installed in London. Brilliant. With TFL, uh, and just as an example of the size of that scale, there are more crossings in London than there are in the whole of Scotland. So you're you're looking yeah. at a big infrastructure, and mm -hmm. as soon as you do it with somebody like Transport for London, it's it's massive. It's massive. So is this something you anticipate to roll out globally eventually? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this could work anywhere in the world. Uh, it has the potential to work anywhere in the world, and it's going to become quite apparent in a second when I talk about welcome and the other things, that yeah. this has got even greater opportunity. Um, we've pressed a button with a mobile phone purely by us standing next to the crossing or the button. And it wouldn't take long for people to go, oh yeah, yeah, you could do that with this and that and that and that. Well, it's a button at a pedestrian crossing, but it's a button at a door, it's a button at an elevator, it's a button of a, an escalator, it's a button at a, mm -hmm. anything. Um, and that's the other things that we started looking at. We went, well, if we can press a button with a mobile phone without the need for Wi-Fi, without the need for a connection, just purely bus standing next to it, and it being in a closed circuit, well, there's plenty more we could do. Um, and I'll to go, go on to explore. It'd be very easy to go to welcome just now, but I'll go to explore because explore happened for a very good reason. I won the Edinburgh Apps competition. The chaps at Edinburgh Council went, well, we don't really want his pedestrian crossing at this point. It's not really been proved. I don't think they even thought of it at that level, but they went, what else are you doing? And part of my prize was talking to the CEO or a chap who was a, a consultant called Steve Langmead. And he said, could this work with tourism? And I went, yeah, in fact, that's brilliant because I've been thinking about tourism and how I could actually make tourism more accessible. And for years we'd been using 
uh, RFID with the big handsets. So you go into the building, you get the handset, you pay five pounds, you punch in numbers, you walk around, you hold it to your face, you go, somebody was smoking who had this one last time, you hand it back, it's grubby and all the rest of it. And yeah. nobody had really moved in this field for such a long time. And I thought, well, not only can I replace the RFID handset, I can do it with somebody's phone mm -hmm. because it's their phone. They're going to upgrade it every two years because they have a contract. So I no longer have to worry about the hardware. And I don't also have to do it in a building. I can do it anywhere. And not only that, I can do it anywhere where there's no reception. I could do it underground because I'm using beacons. Yeah. What is now beacons, which at the time was BLE. Uh, so I asked and got permission to do it on the Royal Mile. We put beacons up and down the Royal Mile. Uh, if you download our app, unfortunately it's not currently working. It's working, but we just didn't have the funding in order to do three products at the same time. Mm. So it's sitting there just now, just waiting to be turned on again. You could download the app, walk up and down the raw mile, and collect stories about where you're standing without the need for Wi-Fi. So it's great if you've got data roaming problems. Um, but the thing that really drew me to that, and the thing that's drawn me to everything, was the inclusive nature of the mobile phone. As I've already discussed, people mm. with disability can access mobile phones. Uh, and anybody that's... Um, interested if they go into general and then go to settings and look at accessibility they can drill down and they will see a whole host of things play around in there and you'll go wow this is standard <laughs> i could just use this if a developer knows about it you can just write it into anything you're using and then you suddenly have one fifth of the population in the uk who suddenly have access to something that you didn't that they didn't have access to before mm -hmm. because you just know how to write for it so i thought well how about making tourism accessible and how about replacing the rfid um audio guide with a mobile phone, uh, which is what we did. And you download the app, you walk up and down, collect stories, audio, pictures, and text, which, whether you're a child, whether you're an elderly, whether you've got a visual impairment, even if you're from another country, get it in a different language, everybody can access it. So no holograms, no virtual reality, no augmented reality, just purely storytelling um, through the mobile phone. So we did all that, and that was Explore, and that could roll out any time that we want it to, really, as soon as we get the funding. Uh, for anything. Um, so shall I take you back towards welcome again? Yes, <laughs> There's a yeah, lot of absolutely. information here, I do apologise. <laughs> no, not at all. This uh, is fantastic. So <laughs> yeah, to the button press, um, which was the pedestrian crossing. Well, I realised that I was making a connection and it's worth talking about the, the technology, which at the time was called BLE or Bluetooth 4.0, which in 2012 when I started using it, hadn't even been coined as beacon technology but a year and a half later, it was then launched as iBeacons and Beacon Technology. So I was so far ahead of the game, and I was doing it for yeah. tourism already at that point, uh, that now they're doing marketing and retail and some tourism, but not, not much, and certainly not inclusive tourism. Mm. There's not really anybody who's looking at it from that point of view. Uh, so uh, welcome for us was the opportunity to press a button as you walk through a door. Not necessarily the button of the door, although that's kind of where it came from. I thought, well, what if I'm going into a hospital and I can open the door at the hospital just purely because the hardware is inside the, the blue button? Mm -hmm. And if I approach that with my phone and the door recognizes my phone and says, well, this person needs me to open the door, I'll open the door. Well, if I've done that and the door is aware of that, well, so can anyone in that building be aware that I've arrived. And if I can make them aware of my arrival, I can also inform them of how they should interact with me. Wow. So if I've got a disability <laughs> and I'm arriving in a building, yeah. say it's a hospital, and I go up to the receptionist, the receptionist can know by the time I get there that I have a hearing impairment. 
And then if they don't know about hearing impairments, I can give them tips on how they should interact with me. But of course, hospitals are the tip of the iceberg. That's mm -hmm. a big iceberg, but it's a tip of the iceberg. Hotels, train stations, airports, coffee shops, Argos, supermarkets, post offices, banks. There's a whole world of situations where customer service personnel have to interact with people with mobility issues, learning difficulties, whatever it might be. Uh, and I suddenly had found a way that I could inform them as to how they should interact. Not only helping the person who's got the reduced, reduced mobility or a reduced ability, although in so many cases that's not true, <laughs> as we've seen from Paralympians, but I was then probably even more importantly helping the people who needed it most. And the people who need it most are the able-bodied people who don't understand the needs of the person with disability as they come through the door. Yeah. If I can help them, what I've actually done is I've re-enabled the person who traditionally is seen as having a disability. In so many cases, their disability has been their inability to do something. Remove their inability to do something and their disability disappears in so many respects. Obviously, physically, they still have uh, challenges. But if your biggest challenge is how do I communicate with a customer service member, and I've taken that away, well, all of a sudden, Stephen Hawking can come through the door. <laughs> and who's disabled if Stephen Hawking can't come through the door? It's not him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the yeah. building he's trying to get into. So I just saw this as the f an amazing opportunity to be able to help a person traditionally who's found it challenging mm -hmm. with a disability, but just as much the person in the customer service team who, yeah. as Scope put it, is feeling awkward about interacting with somebody, uh, make it easier for them. So Welcome was born from this situation, and Welcome is an app that is la launching next week. And this is a bit of a, you guys, oh, you guys <laughs> you're in the right place at the right time with this. Yeah. Uh, it's on the App Store now, so you could Amazing. download it and, and test it, although we, we, the venues haven't gone live yet. Okay. Um, but every venue we've gone to, we've said, are you interested? This is what it's going to do. And they've gone, that's pretty much top of our list of priorities right now. Banks, airports, building societies, airport, I mean, you name it, shops. You walk in and they go, what's the most important thing? They go, customer service, especially banks. Yeah. Because th they fell down on that. What's the most important thing to a bank 10 years ago was making money. Now it's how much trust we can get from the people who are using us. Mm -hmm. and our customers are the most important thing. So to that end, Royal Bank of Scotland said, yep, we'd like to put that in our head office. Uh, Edinburgh Airport have said, yep, we'd like to install it at Edinburgh Airport. Um, Edinburgh University through Levels Cafe, they're installing it there. It's first in a university. Um, and I've got quite a few others that unfortunately I can't talk about right now mm -hmm. because it's pre-launch and they're, they're kind of like, they're just wanting to make sure that they're involved in the, the marketing rather than me just blurting it out on, <laughs> on a fantastic webcam. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, it's gonna launch at the end of July okay. and we're already gaining quite a lot of traction. Um, and it's a SaaS model, uh, it's a free app. All of our apps are free to the end user. They don't have to pay for it. They just download it for free, walk through the door. The building they're going into gets more people walking through the door, so they pay a little bit more for that service. It's um, a very small price to pay of a monthly f subscription. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, with the SaaS model, we want it everywhere. 
So, which is kind of a nice segue onto what I was going to ask. I mean, what you're doing is potentially, I mean, it's, it's truly revolutionary and it's absolutely game changing for people that are in need of this type of technology. How do you take it, you know, worldwide? Mm. And what are some of the challenges that you face? Well, bearing in mind up until two years ago, it was just me. <laughs> I was the only person in this company. Yeah. I had lots of advisors, great advisors, great people helping me out, Business Gateway, and we're now uh, account managed. Mm -hmm. And Scottish Enterprise have been fantastic in that respect. But it was just me. And then uh, a year ago now, is it a year? No, it is only a year ago. I took on um, an operations director, a business development manager, uh, and a marketing graduate, uh, somebody who was going to help us with marketing. Uh, our business development manager uh, left and we've now got a new one who started last month uh, who's absolutely fantastic, Kimberly, uh, brilliant. Uh, and we'll, I'll talk about how we develop the business in a second, but having, a, uh, having an ops director, a person who can, who can pull the strings <laughs> is just like there. If you don't have that person, you need that person. It might be you, but if, if it's not you, you need that person in a company. And I'm very lucky, the chap I've got, Alan Hutchin, is absolutely brilliant. And Jeffrey Hughes, um, who, who came to us from Canada, is a young chap, had his own business in Canada, uh, and left his business to be here with his partner, who was uh, trained to be a lawyer. And his what he doesn't know about SEO and marketing and social media, uh, and now knows about accessibility in web design. And our website, neatbox.com, is um, two star or sorry double A standard for accessibility we're aiming for triple A oh, but Jeffrey went from having designed five websites to this being a sixth or whatever and it being double A rated uh, with accessibility which is just phenomenal yeah. for somebody like that so we're very lucky that the whole team uh, really lucky need those guys but it was me for such a, 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 a long time uh, but we moved forward. How, how have you managed your emotions and stayed to the course without Oh, I have no emotions. <laughs> <laughs> Initially, the biggest problem was that I never got high, but I got low. Uh, huh. So, although yeah. I was on a roller coaster ride, I didn't get the happy parts of the roller coaster ride. I got the, oh, it's all gone pear shaped. Oh, I've heard Microsoft are going to use beacons. Oh, I've heard such and such a person is going to, oh, well, that's it, we're gone now. A big company like that comes along, it's going to, they're going to, surely they're going to be all over you in no time at all. Um, but of course, they don't have the skills or the, the expertise at that lower level, which is why these big companies want to work with smaller companies, because yeah. they need that expertise and experience and UX and the rest of it. Um, so, uh, I've lost my train of thought there for a second. <laughs> yeah, don't often, but <laughs> go back to the question. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the question was. <laughs> it was good, I'm glad um, you lost it as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll let that one, we'll <laughs> well, let that one slide. Everybody uh, else knows yeah, what it was. I think it was, it was it actually about managing your emotions. Oh yeah, emotions. To, yeah, there we go. Yeah, uh, yeah. You just move on. You just yeah. forget them very quickly. <laughs> if you forget something, you just move on. Um, so yeah, I was I was going into the trough of being, oh no, it's all going to go pear-shaped. And then when it came back up again and I got good news, I would say, uh, oh, that's just leading me to the next thing. And I came up with an analogy. Just I love analogies, but this one popped into my head. My team hate that I love analogies because I'm always using them. But when you're entrepreneurial, uh, and you're with a group of people who are either on the same team or following you, friends and family, or just interested parties. Uh, imagine walking into a room you've never been into before. And it's a fantastic room. Maybe it looks like this one. And instantly people then walk around, look at pictures, or they help themselves to the drinks cabinet, or whatever it is, <laughs> and people start enjoying being in the room. And everybody's looking at the entrepreneur who's walked into the room with you, and they're all going, 
Come on, man, enjoy it, this is fantastic. But the first thing you do when you're an entrepreneur is when you walked into the room, is look for the next door. Hmm. And that's all you're thinking about is the next door. So you very seldom get the opportunity to stop and then enjoy the room. And I guess that's what I've always done, and I still do it now. Uh, and only when I start telling other people about what we've achieved in the time that we've done it, do I go, yeah, God, that's actually, we did some stuff there. That was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, but on the day-to-day -day basis, you just move forward and move forward. The thing that I have worked out is that you don't do this. You just, you stay there. <laughs> <laughs> never get too happy, never get too sad. Uh, and just be aware of the journey being fun. So, so reflecting back on, on where you've come from, what would you say have been some of the high points? Uh, littered with high points, like littered with high points that I just did that with. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, looking, looking back, I can see the bits where I was like, wow, did we really do that? Uh, when, TF, when TFL say, yeah, we'll have a pedestrian crossing in London. You go, yeah. what? I would never have thought that that was possible. We got sent a pedestrian crossing system from Canada with a chap saying, could you integrate it into the, into the Canadian infrastructure? And we got his crossing and I opened a box and I had a Canadian pedestrian crossing in my front room and I went, yeah, we can do that and we can. I mean, it, we looked at it and we know that we could do it. Um, Voom, runner-up, did twice, runner-up in Voom. Um, coming second in that big competition I told you earlier, uh, these are all massive steps forward. But I think the biggest steps forward for me is when you come up with an idea of a technological solution knowing nothing about technology. You do it, you walk up to a pedestrian crossing mm -hmm. and the wait light comes on. And that's great. But in October, I was at the Rehabilitation International Congress. I was presenting at it in, it's the largest one for rehab, rehabilitation workers and, and people with disability in uh, the world. And it was in Edinburgh. And we managed to blag an installation of our pedestrian crossing outside the Edinburgh, Edinburgh International Conference Center. We paid for it ourselves and just put it in. And I took a couple of guys out there who were part of Digital Orchestra uh, in Scotland. And they, were both, they both have cerebral palsy. And I put my phone into the lap of one of the guys. We went up to the crossing and the wait light came on purely because he had a mobile phone with him that could press the button. Now this chap could not press the button. He can't reach the button. Mm. Somebody either has to do it for him or he has to get a care worker or he has to use a different crossing. And if anybody looks at, you'll find that video if you look it up on YouTube and you put, put in Andrew and Chris cross the road, I think it's called. And I'm walking across the road. I was oblivious, oblivious really of it being filmed, but I just, I got halfway across the road having seen what it did and having seen his expression. Yeah. And I just went, yes. <laughs> and I get goosebumps now thinking about that moment where you go, I did that. Yeah. That wouldn't exist if I didn't do that. And you cannot buy that. Yeah, you can't buy that. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's, that's a high. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's, that's truly amazing. Mm. It, and it, I, I suppose it leads me to, there's a video that I watched and you quote, this is one of the quotes that you say and you say, the solution should always start with the people that understand the problem. What has been some of the, the feedback from the people that have been able to use this technology? Mm. It's good pointing, looking at the solution starts with the people who understand the problem. I think it can. I think it doesn't always have to, but unless you involve the people that can understand the problem, yeah. five years after coming up with a solution and you haven't spoken to somebody who understands the problem you're trying to solve and you're, you're going down the wrong route. Um, and I, I guess it was very easy for me as a practitioner to say, I've come up with a solution, 
I didn't go through, it wasn't academic. I didn't have to do five years of research. I don't have a degree, I've not even got a degree with guide dogs. A degree came in after I'd done mine, but um, I got three years of training with guide dogs and no academic qualifications to speak of other than O grades. Uh, and all of a sudden I'm coming up with a technology solution based on practical knowledge and an idea. So it was like, well, it's possible. You can do that. There's a whole world of people out there, doctors, dentists, uh, firemen, policemen, these guys have got sparks in their eye and, and it needs to be seen by other people because they know the problems and they just work around them. Um, and when you come up with the solution and you see or even come up with the idea that there's a problem yeah. and then you talk to the person that's living that problem and you see them going, yeah, every single bloody day that's a problem. Mm. And what do I do? I, well, I have to phone in advance if I want to go somewhere. I have to ask somebody else to press the button. Oh no, I don't use that crossing anymore. <laughs> and they work around, they work around, they work around. They don't actually have the opportunity to fix. Some guys do, and there's amazing entrepreneurs out there who are now, who are people from these backgrounds who go, oh, damn it, I'm gonna fix that. And they're the guys who understand the problem because they live it. Um, but when you see somebody or when you talk to somebody, when somebody experiences, like Chris and Andrew crossing that road, mm -hmm. I got involved with um, Edinburgh Access Panel and one of the chaps came out and he's severely disabled. He can just use his chair. His, his speech is uh, disabled by his inability to do these things. Uh, his idea that he could just go up to a crossing, simplest thing in the world, and mm. the weight light to come on. And he did it with us. And myself and Alan were just, oh man, lump in the throat moment. Yeah. Because that's massive. Mobil mobility, social mobility, uh, health mobility, commercial mobility. Mm -hmm. uh, we can talk about augmented, uh, sorry, we can talk about um, autonomous vehicles all we like, but it's a person getting into a car before it takes them, or a vehicle, before it gets them somewhere. You have to think about the person. Yeah. It's their life that you're going to change when you come up with something, not the car. The car doesn't give a monkey's. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's seeing that, that's the best pay you could ever get in the world. Mm -hmm. And Steve Jobs, mm -hmm. he said, I wish I'd spent more time with my family. He had all the money in the world. Uh, and he's there dying of cancer and he's going, I should have spent more time with my family, mm. which just meant he didn't have to make so much money at the time. But mm. yeah, you don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to be on my deathbed yeah, yeah. <laughs> coming up with that stuff. Yes. Well, I wish I'd, I wish I'd taken that risk. I wish I'd done something that I, I thought could work. And this isn't about me. This is about anybody. There are people out there who don't do it and regret it later. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, take a risk, take a little gamble. You don't have to jump in straight away. I did three years guide dogs before I jumped in straight away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's, 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 really, it's, it's really sad how much we take for granted being able-bodied. Um, you, you posted a video just the other day because of the voting, you know, how much of a challenge it is for people just to do something that really is just a, a human right. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, uh, but it's really important, really important, to, from a point of view of somebody who's able-bodied, and I'm not, I've got arthritis in my knees and I can't do all the things I would love to do, I can't run and do any of these things anymore, mm. is to not come at it from the point of view of ah, or sympathy, or what a shame. Because I guarantee you there are people out there who have these disablements who are far superior to me at sport, who are far superior to me academically, who are far superior, they don't deserve my sympathy, they mm. deserve my help to do something. Mm. Like Lewis Hamilton in the sports car, they deserve my help to get moving again. And 
that's the only part here. That's the ethos of this whole movement inside myself here, which is this inclusive, it, it's not me trying to make the world inclusive, it's trying to say to the world, you, you've got to be, how could you not be? We miss out when we don't, we mm. miss out. I mean, if, if we go back 200 years and say, well, Stephen Hawking would never have even had the opportunity. You just go, whoa, we've got to think of that as the norm. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going in that direction. It just needs a little push every now and again. Mm -hmm. and I think it does need that push. Mm -hmm. What's your vision for, for the company? Where do you see it in five years? Uh, I get asked this a lot, normally by investors who go, please tell me about your exit strategy. Well, yeah, <laughs> it did go through my mind. <laughs> so it's kind of nice when you get somebody, what's your vision for the, for the business in five years? And I don't have to go, yeah. I don't have to talk to them about how much money they're going to make. <laughs> Trust me, I want to make them a lot of money. I'm very keen on my investors who have taken the risk and the chance of investing in a company purely based on my belief in me. I want to make sure that that, sorry for hitting the microphone. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> I, I want to make sure that they get, um, they get payback for that. Yes. They would, they're the sort of people, and these are friends and family investors, they don't care if they don't see the money again, mm. a lot of them. They just want, they just invested in me as a person to do this, but I want to repay them for what they do. So it's really important that that happens. So I want the company to be making money. I want the company to be providing services for people who need those services. Mm -hmm. I want to stay in the area that I am in. I don't suddenly want to be doing this for incredibly wealthy golfers who fly into Glen Eagles and walk through the door and they know who it is before they, when they get out of the helicopter. I don't necessarily, I, I'm prepared to accept that if somebody wants to do it, uh, in Dubai, something like that. But uh, that's not what I wanted to do. So five years from now, if people are saying, or even saying, if people are doing stuff that I had a connection to uh, and people were saying, I guess from a personal point of view, yeah, there are certain people that saw it early I think that's quite a nice thing to hear in the future. And yeah. I'm not the only one, there's a whole, believe me, there are lots. I'm involved with some amazing companies, people that you just wouldn't know, but when you get involved, they've got the most Twitter feeds in the entire world. These people are just amazing. Uh, and I'll mention people like Molly Watt and Neil Milliken from Atos uh, and Deborah Rue, and, and there are some just stunning people out there that are doing the most amazing work. And I am one of them, mm. um, or wanting to be one of them, mm -hmm. but I'm certainly not on the, I'm not on the front. I'm a part of a pack, but I'm part of a pack which is a small pack compared to the rest of them. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts a little bit on entrepreneurship in Scotland and I suppose this perceived um, don't be too big for your boots type mentality. Yeah. Um, is this something that you've faced? Um, I'm not, no, I've never really had that. No. Uh, I think I've been part of the entrepreneurship journey along with other people and I was part of eSpark for six months I didn't really use it that much um, because it was I felt it was more to do with how, how are you gonna get on stage and talk and I thought well I'm kind of it seems to be working you got, you got that nailed down. <laughs> well no I'm not, I'm not gonna say I always get better you can always want to get better um, but uh, I didn't really get that involved although I have lots of friends who are entrepreneurs and I meet up with them on a regular basis and talk to them about what they're doing but I, I'm kind of like I'm on the same ship, but I'm in a different compartment of that ship. Yeah, analogies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I don't know where that one come from. Uh, how, and how does it look in Scotland? I, it's so easy to say Scotland, England, Wales. How's the entrepreneurship? I think entrepreneurship, in general, mm -hmm. is in an amazing zone right now. 
with technology and, and the things that we're doing. I think entrepreneurship in general. Yes, I'm part of Scottish Business Network and I'm part of, I'm very proud to say this is a Scottish company. Uh, and I know other people who are doing amazing things in Scotland. I don't know enough about, I'm not even prepared to, to, to say, yeah, Scotland's better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. I just know that the individuals in Scotland who care about what they do are doing it very well. Mm. Uh, and I think that's as far as I would sort of go with that. Yeah. Could it be better? I'm sure it can be better. Has it taken me a long time to get a pedestrian crossing in place? Yes, it has. Has it been too long? It's been a long time, but I've learned a lot on that journey. If, it, if I got there quicker, would I have learned as much? Maybe not. So the journey I've been on is probably the right journey. Um, Scottish Enterprise, absolutely fantastic. Business Gateway. Uh, John Hughes of Business Gateway was just phenomenal mm. with Neatbox. He just believed in us. He went, I want to get you guys on account management because I can see this is going to be great. Get onto account management, work with Scottish Enterprise and Scottish Investment Bank and Scottish Development International. Uh, and you're doing amazing things. Um, but they are just a part. They're not everything. They will not be the engine. You have to always be the engine. They're the little bits that can give you a more comfortable ride. Yeah. Yeah. Was that another analogy? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on what you think um, the function of an entrepreneur is. Uh, I've thought about this quite a few times and I can't describe it better than saying an entrepreneur or the word entrepreneur is something else, is something that somebody else gives you. I'm not even comfortable saying I'm an entrepreneur. Okay. I, especially because I was a guide dog mobility instructor, that's the best job title in the world, uh, <laughs> apart from maybe dolphin trainer. But I, I was entrepreneurial and somebody said, you're now an entrepreneur. But if people set out to be an entrepreneur, there's a very good chance that they haven't got the right solution. Uh, what, do you want, what do you want to be when you grow up? An entrepreneur. Have you got any ideas? None at all but I know I want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And there's a risk that people go down that route. I think, get some experience, could be anything. Could be the 10 year old who's been in the mountain rescue, with the mountain rescue with his father who goes, wouldn't it be good if there was a better crampon? I mean, that could be an entrepreneurial thought. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what makes you an entrepreneur, but it's not, it's not a title you should give yourself. Other people say, you're an entrepreneur, and you say, I'm just entrepreneurial in what I do. Uh, yeah. And I think that would that would sum up what I do, and the word entrepreneurship. Yes, yeah, that's a really good answer. Really good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, you've you've hit upon um, entrepreneurship in Scotland, things that we could potentially do better. Um, had you not founded Neatbox, what do you think you might be doing? I'd be a guide dog mobility instructor. Really? Yeah. yeah. And given the opportunity, I would be a guide dog mobility instructor. I didn't want to be. A business owner. I did not want to have to do this. If guide dogs had said, yeah, you can do that and be a part of Guide Dogs for the Blind, I would have done it. Training people how to use guide dogs is the most awesome job. I did it for 18 years. I loved it. And my leaving do, I had 25 guide dog owners all turn up and go, we're sad you're going because my next dog won't be trained by you <laughs> or you've done amazing things in the past. Mm -hmm. And that's just, it's the most fantastic thing. Uh, I would find it difficult to go back now full time because my vision has been widened by what I can do. Huh. Uh, I could reach so many more people doing what I'm doing, but yeah. I can still train a guide dog. Uh, I could go along and somebody say, could you come and assess this guide dog for me? I would do that at the drop of a hat. So no, no aspirations to be a business leader. 
and if I can call myself that one day, then I'll be happy. But I would rather call myself a guide dog mobility instructor. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. <laughs> Gavin, it's been brilliant um, finding out about, you know, frankly, a, a fairly incredible journey, um, the amazing work that you're doing, and your passion is so... Um, it's just like tangible, you know, it's just, it's amazing. I get that a lot. <laughs> the way, the way, genuinely, your energy and the way that you speak about it comes across so much. I think it's absolutely phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, at this stage, I'd like to maybe peel back the layers a little bit further and discuss some of the larger, more sort of philosophical topics around um, success and, and purpose. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a drink of water before you do that. That <laughs> sounds like a heavy should. conversation. <laughs> so in terms of yourself, talking about your sort of raison d'etre or your why or your purpose, what do you feel it is at this stage? We have touched on this. It wouldn't be a surprise for anybody to realise that I just want to be part of something bigger. Uh, I've, I've recognised there's a movement in a certain area. And if we're looking at the human condition, the idea that since the dawn of time, since the dawn of records, we've seen a person who has a, and I will use inverted commas here, a disability mm -hmm. as being inferior in some way. The idea that we do that is as insane as looking at somebody's, the color of somebody's skin or their gender. The inequality of thinking that somebody is inferior purely because we see them as different from ourselves. There can be no bigger thing for me than to be part of explaining to people that that isn't the case. And not only is that person uh, not inferior, but in so many ways they're better hmm. uh, because they've decided to do something amazing. Or even not, it could be just getting to the shops and back. But getting to the shops and back when you have things in your way on the pavement, hmm. when you could walk into a branch that's hanging low because somebody else hasn't designed or somebody hasn't cut their tree, that takes incredible strength. Uh, and you could only ever be impressed with Lewis Hamilton driving the car and think, God, I'm very happy and very lucky to be the guy that's putting the, the tires on or whatever it is that I'm doing. Uh, so as far as the journey is concerned, and for me, uh, it's about being part of uh, that group of people who are explaining and pushing forward the idea that we're all equal, all of us, and we're all deserving of equality. What a powerful answer. That's absolutely fantastic. It would not really? be as powerful if it wasn't as true as it could possibly <laughs> yeah. be. My mum, if my mum watches this one day, if she gets all the way through it, she'll be like, uh, she'll be like, yeah, that's pretty much what I thought I was bringing up. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think you would like your legacy to be? Uh, if it's not successful, I, I'd rather just disappear. <laughs> if this, if what I'm trying to put across isn't successful, then I would just, if you could not remember me at all, would be okay. Um, but if it's successful, I'll be connected to it, but purely because I'll be the note in history as to why that was successful. There'll be plenty of people out there in Africa or wherever it might be who will turn on a light switch and the light will come on and they won't have a clue who invented that, hmm. uh, but somebody did. And if they studied it, they might find the name of the person who did that, uh, or Orville Wright or whoever it might be. There'll be plenty of people who don't know how that came into being, um, but to have done it, to have been part of that journey, that history, that part of being part of a planet and a time on a planet, that's pretty cool. Hmm. How do you define success? Um, 
the day when Chris and Andrew crossed the road with a mobile phone, and plenty of people have done it since, then that's a buzz. Success will be when they're doing it without me standing there and somebody else filming it, when they're doing it with me not being there, and them just going, yeah, that's just part of what I do. I just go up to the crossing, the button gets pressed across the road. I go into the building, somebody comes over and says, who they've never met before, goes, Chris, uh, I know I've got your shopping list, or I know you're here to upgrade your phone, or I know that you want to open an ISA. Uh, that will be success when it's part of somebody's life, mm -hmm. when that's just something that they do. Yeah. Who or what inspires you? Obviously my mum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she inspired me to do a lot of these things. Um, well, who inspires me? Uh, I could name any number of people you never heard of who were guide dog owners who were guide dog owners second. Mm -hmm. um, her names, Maria Schulwatz, Murray Jenkinson, uh, Mike McDermott, the first person I ever trained with a guide dog. Murray, who just, uh, is just the most amazing active guy. I mean, these guys are awesome. Mario, who does uh, martial arts, has got a visual impairment and doesn't even tell the people that he's fighting against necessarily that he would really? have a bit oh, of, oh, wow. These guys, and, uh, and these are endless, little old ladies who, who will just go out and see their grandchildren and their children, their grandchildren won't even think that they have a disability. They don't see them as a visual impairment. Mm -hmm. They see them as my granny and that's her guide dog. Uh, these people are just stunning. There are people out there um, who are higher up the food chain and you can only be impressed by what they do with what they've got, uh, but they're probably not the most impressive people to me, or they're not the ones that I fed from. Uh, they're not the ones I would point out, although you're very aware that they've done and they do amazing things. Mm -hmm. But no, I would say those individuals who only their family and friends know about them, but I've, I've seen them and gone, and I could probably, if I sat here for another five minutes, I would just reel off hundreds of names. Yeah. Uh, it'd be very easy to do. They're in my brain right now. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I did. <laughs> yeah, should I give that answer? Yeah. <laughs> best piece of advice I ever. <laughs> I like where this no, is no, going. No, 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 you don't. <laughs> no, well, I was, I was thinking about your questions before. And uh, there's a sort of comedy answer that I'd thought about. The best piece of advice that I could have been given would be when I was 20, a guy came up to me and said, you should go and do this and do that and the next thing. And then, of course, your next question is, uh, what advice would you give to a 20-year-old? Yeah. That would be me going back and seeing myself when I was 20. But that, that didn't happen. Uh, best advice that, uh, that I've ever been given or the best advice I could give... Yeah. If it's, if it's, a, if it's a, me giving advice to somebody else, and I love mentorship, I wish I'd had mentors, uh, is find somebody that you trust and use them as a sounding board for your thoughts and feelings. But when you have a thought and a feeling and you truly, truly believe in it, just go with it. Because the journey itself would be just as powerful as the end result. And if you achieve something great, if you don't achieve something, don't worry about it. Um, if you've given everything to it, you will leave nothing behind and you will be like, I did that. And that's got to be the best advice. It's just go and do it. There's only one way that we can fly. There's only one way that we've got light. There's only one way that we've got TV and all these things. It's because the people that started thinking it was possible, Darwin is a great example. He, he would have stopped because he had a, the amount of detractors he had um, is they just kept pushing forward. 
uh, belief in what you truly believe in and just keep going for it. And I, I would recommend that. And if you need mentorship, then find a great mentor. Fantastic. Going back to the uh, 20 year old you, what, what would you tell them? <laughs> um, probably what I told you a second ago. <laughs> it was told to me by this chap who I'd never met before. He looked a bit like me. Um, <laughs> he was obviously a time traveler. I, do you know what? I, 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 don't, I really don't know the answer. I have thought about this and I don't know the answer to that question other than somebody saying, I would go back and say, just keep doing what you're doing. And that wouldn't have to be somebody from the future. That could just be your mentor. That could just be somebody who, who trusts you and believes that you believe in what you're doing. Uh -huh. So I don't think there's anything that I would do other than give myself the oomph that anybody else could give me. So yeah, I might, lottery numbers might come in. That, yeah, would, yeah. that would help, I guess, <laughs> a bit of funding. Uh, but then you'd miss out on the journey. How many people yes. out there win the lottery and then their life doesn't necessarily get better? So. Yeah, the journey's just as important. If you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? Jeez, oh, I see. yeah, well, obviously, mm -hmm. um, because of what I'm connected with, it would be overnight, I would just say, everybody has to think of equality as the, the top thing. It's, if everybody thinks about equality, everything else falls into place. If everybody, if, you, if we all look at somebody else as an equal, an equal, uh, with an equal right, to their belief and an equal right to their life, no matter who they are, where they're from, what their beliefs are. As long as if everybody thinks like that, we don't then start saying, I'm gonna take away what you've got. Hmm. Uh, and that equality of thought, if I could change that, just change it. Yeah. But that's a movement, that's what we're gonna try and do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and so yeah, what's, what's required for that? Is that like a global shift in consciousness? I think it's happening. Yeah, I think it's happening, but I don't. It's not going to happen quick unless people get involved and start doing things like this and talking and getting seen and, and putting it on paper or putting it on uh, video or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Did I say video? I mean, I should have meant YouTube, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> not a techie. Um, change. I think changing that consciousness, uh, personal experience, and this is a this is a great example. The Last Leg, which is a fantastic comedy program um, with the guys that are on there. We're seeing people on there with disability on a daily basis. And we're not seeing them as the guy with the leg or the guy with the thalidomide or whatever um, mm -hmm. the chap has. Um, we're seeing somebody who's funny, first and foremost. Uh, we're seeing a politician and we're going, well, they, they've not, they're a politician, not, I hate them because I hate their policies. <laughs> not, I hate them because they're visually impaired. You yeah, think exactly. of like David Blunkett or something like that. Yeah. Um, so the more people experience people who are different from them, mm -hmm. then the easier it is to understand the other person's point of view. Mm. And the more we can do that, the more we see other people, the more we have women in high jobs, the more we have people from other countries um, taking positions in this country or living next door to us, mm. the more we experience that they're actually great people. And you just have to think to back to the First World War and or I thought Germans had horns in their head the way that the propaganda went but yeah. if you know somebody who's German at the time you'd go that's not my experience so mm. it's just that that that's all equality, equality. Yeah. yeah and challenging the notions as well yeah, yeah just being open to having a different idea yourself when exactly. given new information yeah yeah 
Gavin, it's been a really absolutely unbelievable interview. Um, it's been good I've, I've, yeah, good. I'm glad. I've genuinely loved hearing about um, the work that you're doing. I think it is absolutely incredible. And I genuinely wish you all the best and can't wait to see um, where you go on your journey. Thank you. So, we're going to go for a handshake again. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> it was brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thank Thanks, you. Gavin. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Inspired Edinburgh. Please come and find us on social media and leave us a review on iTunes. Many thanks.